from a distance the world looks blue and green and the snow-capped mountains white i think my mother from knew that i would eventually go but she was dreading the day when i actually would so i remember walking into the kitchen and saying to her mom i've applied for lebanon and she just cried from a distance there is harmony and it echoes through the land even in typing out the letter i was saying i don't know if i can do this so i let it go through and went ahead but as i knew i was getting the feedback that yes you're due the trip and i was getting jittery i didn't know how to react i knew i was going to get it and i was due it and yet i said no maybe i won't whatever so i was told officially then that i got the trip and i just i couldn't believe it i didn't know whether i was sad or whether i was happy i knew i would do it eventually and i said right this is it i am going to have to do it and if i don't like it that's just tough that's life i'll have to handle it from a distance we are instruments marching in a common band playing songs of hope playing songs of peace they're the songs of every man after i left school i actually applied for the army while i was still in school just before leaving cert um i sat my leaving cert actually in uniform and at that stage we were just in the initial training stage and we had 40 girls thrown together into um a billet most of us didn't have army affiliations at all i was very lucky in that i've an army background and i knew exactly or more or less what i was heading into um my army background my father was in the army band and most of my uncles were in the army my both my grandfathers were in the army so it just came from generation to generation and of course the fact it was a new thing was really appealing as well that we were going to be the first females in the irish army which was marvelous a great feeling The first day we went up and um, I presumed I didn't know what to wear because I was going into a place where I was going to be given uniforms or whatever so I decided I'd doll myself up anyway. So we went up and we went into this room and these four girls were sitting there and looking at me and they were just near to tears. And I said, "What's going on here?" And they said, "Oh, we've been down to our medical and there was people looking at us and we had to give urine samples and we had to do these awful things." And I hadn't been at that stage. <laughs> So I said, "Oh no, I can't face this on my own. There's nobody coming with me." So they sent an NCO who was in charge of the training down with me, and I came into this the hospital down there which is very military. And there was uniforms everywhere, and there was I dressed up in my little frillies and whatever. But uh I mean all eyes were on the one female in the room who had just come in. And I just couldn't wait to get out of there. And most people from the curra and general area were together billeted together we didn't know each other very well but the first thing we were shown was how to make up our bed 
So we thought you make up a bed by just throwing up the bed covers. But no, there was a special way to make up the bed and we couldn't believe this. As neat and tidy as we were, this was just, we couldn't believe this. Everything was a centimetre this way and a centimetre that way. And so this was really, we ended up just laughing about it all because that, that's basically what gets you through. So within about a week, you, you automatically just are in tune with what's going on. But I had very long hair and it was down my back and I thought it was lovely. I thought I was really nice. So I came out on parade next morning with my black barrette sitting on top of this wild hair. And I thought I looked really nice. So the first thing I was told was, go, get your hair cut. So I panicked and I got skint right up. I was just, I was just like a boy. I panicked so much and I think everybody did. They could have said, jump off the building and I'd say, okay, fine. You were just, just so scared and yet excited about the whole thing that it didn't really matter. And just to learn about aspects that I had never known about, even with a military background, to, to know how to use a weapon and to know I could be in control of a weapon and, and to know how to move tactically in a certain area. It was all very, very exciting. Terrible things really were, I suppose, the miserable days that we had to go out. I mean, hail, rain or snow, we just had to go and that was it. And that was the miserable side of things, probably. And all the shouting, like, I could never understand why are they shouting at me? I can hear them. But this is just the way it is. And, you know, but particularly for the civvies, that was very funny because they, they were just completely, why is he doing this to me? I didn't do anything. You know, that kind of an attitude. But, um... Probably that was the, the whole fear, and just the fear that um, maybe I won't make it, um, maybe I won't be finally approved or whatever, maybe I just don't fit in here. And But there was always the friendship there that said, look, if you're weak on this, we're going to get you through. I think my mother knew that I would eventually go, but she was dreading the day when I actually would. So I remember walking into the kitchen and saying to her, Mam, I've applied for Lebanon. And she just cried. She just got so upset because I'm the oldest of the girls at home and we're very close. I knew Sharon had applied and I knew that this time she definitely would have been gone because she wanted to go so badly. And I said, this is it this time. And I'm delighted for her really, but um, very lonely. I'm I really am delighted for Sharon because it's something she wanted to do. And she's really into her career in a big way. And I think now is the right time for her to go, really. And I'm delighted for her because we didn't get those opportunities. So I'm very, very happy for her that way. But we will miss her terrible because she's very close-knit altogether. And she's at home every day for her lunch with me. So, And then you worry, is she going to be all right? And that kind of thing, you know. But does, does that really scare you? I mean, do you think about the fact that she actually might get injured? Or yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, I think that if things go wrong out there, that, like, um, I suppose when you hear these things on the radio and you're not personally linked to it, you don't give it that much thought. But it's different when you have somebody belong to you out there. We're all behind her, really. You know, at the back of it all, we miss her, but we're happy for her, you know, that she is gone. I was delighted and very pleased when she was uh, selected to go. Um, she was the last of, of her class of girls to, uh, to um, be selected. 
and for, for that reason I was, I was I was delighted she got to serve her country and um, we'll miss her very much of course when she goes it's a very tense situation, very tense there at the moment and mm. there could be a spillover from the the Gulf crisis and uh, you know it coming up to Christmas time as family time, it, more important than that we'll miss her, you know Sharon, what does your mother think about you going out into a place like this? Well, she's very anxious, and I think it's um, just a fear of the unknown at the moment. Yeah. Because I'm not quite sure what to tell her about it, because I don't know myself yet. Yeah. But um, I think when she starts receiving letters and understanding what I'm doing out there, then she'll be reassured. I think so. Do you, do you think that it's going to be like this? Well, I know for um, the lads in the hills, I'm sure it will be. Yeah. Uh, the majority of the time, which is frightening, really. I know, I know. I mean, yeah. this is kind of a funny atmosphere even here, isn't it? Yeah, like training is fine. You're, uh, you're training and it's training for training. Now it's training for the real thing. Absolutely. And it's totally different. <laughs> I know. <laughs> kind of scary. Are you scared at all? I am frightened, yeah. yeah. Um, but yet I want to go and experience it. So, yeah. like, it's something we have been trained for, so this is it. <laughs> My name is Captain Pat McCartan. I'm Weapons Platoon Commander A Company, 68th Irish Battalion, and for the next six months I will be your platoon commander in Lebanon. Just to give you a brief on what is going to happen over the next six weeks before the first chalk flies from Ireland to Lebanon. The first week basically is composed of administration, getting all your paperwork in order, your wills, your blood groupings, all relevant um, details that have to be compiled before anybody can fly from Ireland to Lebanon. Uh, also during this period you will be concentrating on the use of the personal weapon, uh, just re-honing re your skills on the Steyr, Browning pistol and uh, light machine gun. A great deal of emphasis will also be placed on radio work. Most of your work outside here is based on the radio. It's vital that you're able to report accurately precisely and calmly what exactly is happening so that people can take the appropriate action and come to your aid if necessary. The radio you have as well, when you're out on an OP in, in Lebanon and you see something suspicious or anything happens, you want medical assistance or you want backup or you want anything at all out from one location to another, the quickest way to get a message through is on the radio. It's your best friend. It could save your life. So the best way of sending a message and the quickest way is through the radio. So um, do we have to be trained on voice procedure to do this or can we just send a message? No, well, there's certain procedures for, for when you're sending, sending, sending on the radio. Can you give us an example of a message, Serge? Right, now I'm, I'm going to paint a scenario for you. I'm going to give you an example. You're on an OP, you're overlooking a checkpoint. There's a jeep out to come up to the checkpoint with six SLA in it. I want you to, and they're attempting to, to break through the checkpoint, so I want you to send a message back to Zero, okay? Okay. Right. Hello Zero, this is Zero One Alpha. Message over. At this location, one four, there are six LA in a Jeep attempting to break through the checkpoint. Over. Detachment! Detachment! As the target's in front! Target's in front! Normal four, engage! Normal four, engage!
Sharon, would you ever be involved like those men there in a, in a medium machine gun? No, I'd never be involved in any heavy weapons. Um, we've a non-combatant status, which means our personal weapon would be the stire. And today we're going to fire it on the range, and Corporal Pluck here is going to um, instruct me on it. Oh, good. Well, Sergeant Duggan, the first thing I'm going to do is just uh, give you a few brief characteristics of, characteristics of the weapon, um, just to, uh, so you'll remember what you've been taught in previous lessons. Um, then I'm going to uh, show you a few of the, the safety aspects of the gun that you should know. We have the safety catch here on the side. As you know, as you've been taught, the white means safe and the red means fire, okay? So before you prepare to fire, you should always have it on the red. And if you don't want to fire the gun, have it on the white, the safe. When we're given the order fire, we bring the weapon up into a firm position, we release the safety catch, we take a name and fire. Okay, Sergeant Duggan? Okay. Would you like to try it? Yeah, can I just check with you what the range of the weapon is? The range of the weapon is uh, 300 metres, up to 300 metres for individual fire. For section fire, 600 metres. Right. Any other questions? Uh, no questions. Okay. You know, are you not a bit scared now about taking a big gun like that in your hand and letting it off? Uh, not really. I think we've been instructed so much on the safety of it and how to handle it with live ammunition that uh, we're fairly safe with it, I think. <laughs> All right, let's see how you can do. As you know, Sergeant Duggan, before we hand over any weapon, we have to carry out safety precautions. Clear. Okay, we'll go through that now. Range 200. Range 200. At your target in front. At your target in front. Fire. Fire. Remember when you squeeze the trigger, don't try not to snatch at it. Just let the round go itself. Okay. So we'll try the second round now. Range 200. Range 200. Immediate front. Immediate front. Fire. Fire. That was excellent. That was a much better shot altogether. Now, what did it feel like, Sharon, firing like that? Oh, it's great. You know, there's live ammunition there. It's great. You think so? Yeah. You're quite excited about it. Oh, yeah, it's great. Well, now, what happens if there's a body down there? How do you feel about that? Well, I hope there never will be, but if there is, that's just something I'll have to handle. Sir, can you tell me what kind of work I'll be involved in in Lebanon? Yeah, you will be involved mostly in the administration work in Lebanon. Uh, you'll be based in the Kura. Your responsibilities will be towards the, what is known as the contingent, the Irish contingent in the Kura. And for them, you will have to arrange accommodation, feeding, transport, normal orderly room sergeant skills that you have acquired here. Oh, and you'll also work in your suntan. Louise and Clancy to come out was very long drawn out and everybody was very quiet and tired and lonely, you know. But I'm fine now, I mean, I'm more excited now. How was your mum? Oh, don't ask. <laughs> she's very, very upset. Very upset, yeah, she was. Um, she's fine all day, she's keeping up very well. And then near the end, so I made a very quick exit and disappeared, yeah. So. The weeping in Ashigan. Oh, an awful lot of weeping now. You'd flood out the place now with the weeping that was done. <laughs> I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, babe. On behalf of Captain Danu and the rest of the crew, 
So Sharon, we're on the ground. At last. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, it's beautiful weather. That's the first thing that strikes me anyway. <laughs> You're stripping off all the clothes. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I think it looks, it looks quite good there with all the guys in green, doesn't it? Yeah. How many fellows are there about now? I'd say about 250 to 300. Yeah. yeah. Oh, looking fairly white, isn't yeah, it? I think the worst of the journey now is over. And you think so? Well I, well, I think the plane journey was it. At least we've left Ireland. So that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> Sharon, there's no music and everything, so we can talk. Okay. Notice they have made no arrangements for us, girls. No, they <laughs> haven't. We may make our own arrangements. Just, I think we we did. We went before we came out anyway up in the plane. Went a few times to yeah. make sure. Yeah. So we may hold on now at any rate. Well, there were stories, of course, all all the way over on the plane, whether or not we'd be left on the tarmac for so long. But um, really, I suppose I thought my trip would be different and we'd be whisked away very quickly because it was me, of course. But um, I couldn't believe that this was where we were going to wait. Like, I was expecting nice terminals and maybe a cup of tea or whatever, you know. I mean, I was <laughs> probably in dreamland, but anyway. So I couldn't believe this was just, you know, where they left us standing. It was really warm, really dense heat. And a long time. Over. I mean, it was up to three and a half hours. I think the normal is two hours, but um, I think we were there up to three and a half hours, you know, uh, four hours, yeah. We were, I mean, we're hungry and tired and, like, it must have been bad for us to just lie down in the tarmac and go to sleep. That must have been really the pits for me anyway. <laughs> like, it's fine going along here now. At least you can get a bit of sleep and we're on the final leg, more or less. But um, the countryside and everything is just so like mainland Spain or whatever, you know, just dried up kind of barren land, you know. So at the moment there's nothing no, to not see. Really. No. no. But soon we have to get to the border yet, remember? Yeah, well now that I want to be awake for. The border's very frightening, but I expected it to be a huge huge roadway or something. I didn't expect it just to be as small as it was. Like when you said to me, there is the border, I, like I couldn't fathom that at all. You, you have totally different views on it. Yes, yes. But it's a bit frightening, like um, the car being searched and whatever, I mean, from top to bottom and, you know, everything. And they're armed, really armed up there. You know, I mean, this is the real thing. Good morning. My name is Lieutenant Mellet. I'm the adjutant of the 22nd Irish component. I'd like to welcome you all here this morning on your first formal parade in Camp Tara. You have a very important job. You will be the personnel that will man Unifil headquarters and Camp Command. And without Nakora Camp, the operations of the battalions in the AO would quickly grind to a halt. You provide the personnel for Nakora Camp, which is the hub of uniform operations in South Lebanon. And so, I'm confident you'll enjoy your time here just as much as we have. And I wish you every best success in your six months here. And now, I'd like to set out in detail the various duties which you will perform in your six months here. Sharon, this is going to be your office. 
Yeah, for six months. And this is... What's your rank? Chief McCarthy. Chief McCarthy, who's going to give me my handover. Sharon, your, your main job here will be administration of the camp, the Kura camp, as well as Camp Tara. All the Irish personnel serving in the camp, and uh, both the FMR elements and the MPKI elements. Uh, it's a quite busy job, but uh, once you get into the swing of it, it's quite easy and the uh, time goes very fast once you're busy. Um, what hours will I be working and what's the first thing I do in the morning? Well, uh, you'll finish your morning parade at a quarter past seven. And you'll report straight to the audio and uh, you'll collect the morning post for the CO and the other UNIFIL officers, Irish contingent officers. You'll uh, sort out the post, open your mail for the commanding officer, log it into the mailbook, take it into the CO. And uh, the rest of the day will be normal administration routine. You'll have special typing jobs for the CO. Uh, you'll have two routine orders a week to do. Friday, you'll do what we call the Irish routine order. It's for the Irish people serving here. And on Monday, you'll do your camp routine order, which um, gives everyone in the camp any information that is deemed necessary to, to tell them, i.e. border closings to Israel, etc., changing in uh, administration personnel at civilian level, and uh, things like that. What are you worried about, Sharon? Um, I just suppose getting into the swing of things like it's just you're at a loose end until you get organised but once we get into our own stride we'll be fine what, What's most surprising you at the moment? I mean this is your first day at work here um, Just I suppose the, the whole different way of life really you know even the hours are just totally different just even to get used to um, starting work at that time finishing early and meeting everybody and whatever. It's just very strange if I'm at home. Now, this is my humble abode. It's going to be for It's very dance. homey. Yes, nice, isn't it? Very yes. nice. Were you by yourself all the time you yeah. were? Oh, yeah, I just put in the bed for Sharon for the next two weeks. Oh, I see. Which means yeah. there's great privacy in it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's lovely. Yeah. I expect it to be a war-torn <laughs> hut, you know. <laughs> this has ruined my my whole dream of this. Yes, because it's got curtains on the window, hasn't yeah, it? it's beautiful. Nice bedspread shelves. Did you put in the glass shelves yourself, or were they there? They were put in for me, I requested them. Oh, and fridge. And fridge. Oh, how wonderful. Force and commander's coffee table, taken from the force commander's office. <laughs> Finched. Finched. Acquired. Great. And you feminine. And your little wardrobe. desk. Yes. And your little hangers. And like before the bed was there, I had that chair over there and a little coffee table. And it was all nice. So you can fix it up anyway. It's you beautiful. Want. You can change it around. You, you really notice, have a notice really board and everything. Yes. So do you think you'll be happy here for six months? Oh, I'll definitely be happy. I When I walked in the gate, I knew I'd be happy here. Because it's Sharon's first trip everything is going to be new and it's going to be really exciting and it is the the biggest not shock but the, the nicest surprise Sharon has ahead of her is the fact that the social life is absolutely fantastic out here she can choose between jogging aerobics gym she can have do aerobics at least three times a week in uh, the Sweden Medcoy accommodation camp where she's where she's going to live so she's going to live with um, the Swedish medical company which is 95% females not going to have a problem in coping with living with men. There will be about 5% of men living within the same camp as her, but she will have, it'll be in all female toilets, all female showers. How many women? Um, approximately 100 nurses. Many. Yes, we've got nurses, physiotherapists, pharmacists, nurses aides, we've got medivac nurses, you know, you've got also one vet, and she takes care of all the animals. And She's also um, 
an international bodybuilder in Sweden, so you can get well. And she'll be listening to things like that all the time as well. Yes, all the time. All the time. You you will soon get used to helicopters, and you will never want to see or hear a helicopter by the time you get home. For the first two days, you will look up and have a good look, and after that, you'll be so fed up you won't bother. You will occasionally also have the Israeli jets flying across, but very rarely, but you will have them. But um, back to, to your camp, you have all the facilities you could ask for. You've got two, three washing machines to choose from, and it's a book a rotation system. You just write your name on a book, it's a day in advance, and then you've got the privilege of hanging out your washing in the sunshine. Uh, one tip, if you've got um, sexy underwear or very nice bikinis, do not leave them out overnight because they won't be there in the morning. <laughs> they just won't be there. You've got two discos every single week to choose from. One, both in Swedish messes, one at each end of Nakura camp. The one on Friday nights is in Sweden Mekoi, where you live. So even if you don't go to the disco, you'll be part of it anyway because you're going to hear it up until 12 o'clock at night, so you might as well go and enjoy it. Unfortunately, you do have to go in uniform. That's the only rule in both Swedish, in the Swedish mess. You do have to be in uniform, but you can still dance quite quite good in uniform, so don't mind that. Um, the French have a very nice. Um, it's called again social life. They have what's called a dance party, normally uh, twice a month on the Sunday evenings from six to ten. The French um, de Leon's very beautiful food, very good music. So not like the Irish or the other nationalities when they put on a dance, they mean dance. You get in there and you're not, you don't get sitting down, you dance for four hours. And they're very, very good dancers. And if you don't know how to dance rock and roll now when you've arrived, I can guarantee you'll be able to dance before you go home. And your French will also improve slightly. <laughs> so Sharon, first of all, how's your French? <laughs> not very good. <laughs> well, now secondly, how's your rock and roll? Not very good either. <laughs> So you, two things you're going two to learn. Two things I have to learn. Okay. Well, at the moment we're sitting in glorious sunshine looking at the beautiful blue Mediterranean, but as Sharon is here for a winter trip, she's going to get caught with the rain, the wind, and the, the wet and the muck. And one discomfort she will have if she has the unfortunate occasion to have to go to the toilet about 2 o'clock in the morning. Because of where her bedroom is situated, she has to, she's got about a three-minute run in between the raindrops to get to the loo. And that will have to be done in rain gear and boots. And it won't be too too pleasant at 3 o'clock in the morning, I can tell you, to do that. Like, for us, it was the, the discomfort of swatting the mosquitoes for the duration of the trip. But for her, she'll be dodging the raindrops. And that, by the way, is the, um, the Lebanese fishermen. The way they fish, they throw grenades into the water. And then when the fish are dead, they dive in and gather them all up. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. We're standing in the veranda of the Blue Beret Club. It's an international club. It is actually in the Irish Camp Tower, but it's an international club because in Camp Tower you have Fijians, Ghanaians, Norwegians and Irish all living side by side next door to each other. So this club belongs to all of them. You also have the French Defence Company coming into this club as well. So um, Sharon, within the next few weeks, I'm sure, will be very popular in, in this club as soon as she learns she can sing. So she'll be very busy for the next six months, I'm sure.
we've just come out the Force Commander's Gate and we've now entered into what's known as Mingi Street. Which is downtown which Nakura. Is, which is downtown Nakura. And yeah. uh, the way we're going to on on this half was called Quality Street because here you have all the high class the Lebanese high class restaurants which are, which are nothing to compare to at home. But here they're the best you can get. Here on the street you can get anything from a bar of soap to a Sony CD stack system. Absolutely everything and anything you want. And if you go into a shop and they ask and you ask for something and they don't have it, to say I get it for you tomorrow. And there's always special price for Irish. But don't believe them. <laughs> you have to learn how to bargain, Sharon. You will you will know how to bargain before you go home. Sharon, are you good at bargaining? No, absolutely <laughs> hopeless. Yes. But I think one of the girls with this is very good, so I'll take her shopping. <laughs> they expect you more or less to bargain. Yeah. Eat in the restaurants. We have a great time eating in, yeah. in the restaurants. Well, now tell us a bit about the restaurants. What are they the like? restaurants, well, okay, they're not restaurants as such here uh, compared to home. We'll say um, maybe uh, street restaurants like you get a little lower class than you get maybe in Greece or Turkey. But the food is excellent. It's very, very good. You've got Lebanese food, naturally enough. You've got um, what you call hummus, which is um, basically just your chickpeas pr processed into you know, fine mayonnaise. And it goes very nicely with the um, Lebanese pita bread. You've also got um, fatouche, tabbouli, which is all uh, Lebanese salads. And then the two specialised foods out here are fresh fish, which they serve whole. They actually show you um, the fish, you choose the fish, and then they'll, they'll boil it steam it, whatever, and they'll serve it to you, head and tail and eyes included. And then the steaks, there is one restaurant on the street, you are allowed to actually cut your own steak. They place a fillet of steak in front of you, raw, they hand you a knife and they say cut away. And it's the same price whether you take a large one, a small one, it's up to you. So you have great fun. I think perhaps we should describe the street because listening to you talking about all this, it sounds so grand, no, so highfalutin no, and we're so walking, posh. No, it's not posh, we're walking past shacks. Uh, shops, as we call them, have got tin roofs on them. The restaurants, we've got plastic chairs. You're not talking about plush whatsoever. You're talking about your bare necessities. You're talking about um, very, very little glass. You're talking about, uh, as I say, shack roofs. No air conditioning whatsoever. Very bad um, conditions for people to, to work in. The kitchens aren't very well equipped. But they, they still provide uh, very good meals but the place is not very well cooked and it's not how, very plush. How hygienic is it? Unfortunately it's not very hygienic but as, as each girl comes along we pass, we, we tell them which are the good restaurants, which are the bad restaurants, which are the restaurants to avoid. Um, I know the Irish are always complaining about their potholes, they should come out here. These are real potholes, <laughs> absolutely terrible. You, know, you really have to watch where, where you're going and if you're going to drive it's less than six, seven miles an hour. Now, Sharon, read for me what's written up there on the wall. Falchigadi Ellie Mini Market. <laughs> Falchigadi, like yeah. Yes. yeah. And there's a restaurant as well called um, Paddy's, I think. The, yeah, the lads have been there already and say that um, the girl speaks perfect Irish sayings and she has everything off perfectly. Yes. And she absolutely loves the Irish and what they do, the crack, you know. They've yeah. heard about the crack out here as well. <laughs> When you heard about Mingy Street at home, Sharon, um, is this what you thought it was going to be like? Mind, mind the dirt there, mind the, mind no, the road. No, I am. Um, I more or less thought it was kind of a mini shopping centre. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> expected, you know. But I mean, I was just, I was shocked the first night we came down here. They're actual shacks, you know what I mean? And I was afraid to eat anything. 
from there and until the girls told me where to eat and what was the clean places to eat and whatever but I mean it's you know it's uncivilized really to compare to what we're used to at home anyway because I don't think anybody can realize it until you see it no really it's can. just unbelievable yeah. it's really um, they're so they depend so much people on, on whatever we buy and whatever you know yeah. they really depend on for their living from a distance the world looks blue and green and the snow-capped mountains white from a distance the ocean meets the stream and the eagle takes to fly from a distance so why did you come back well i must say i found it very difficult to settle out there um it was a very alien place to me at first but i expected those feelings so i stayed with them for a while before I left, I had an aunt who was very ill and my mother was nursing her full time. So more or less, I was looking after our home place and it was playing on my mind a lot and I was worrying a lot about it. So with the circumstances that were in it, I just after a lot of discussion and consultation and ifs and buts, I just decided it would be better for me to be at home. Um, I was very lonely for home. Because of the circumstances I left behind, probably more so than I would normally be. But it made it that little bit harder. When did you really decide that you wanted to come home? How long had you been there? I had been there probably into the second week. And I always had the idea in my mind that maybe I would go home, even just for a while on leave or whatever. But it was always there. The, the thought was always there in my mind. So it was really there when you went out? Uh, not really, no. I thought it being a new place and a new job and new, everything being new to me, that I'd be fine, that I would forget things at home more or less and I could leave them behind. But it's just not that easy. In fact, it gets much harder when you're away from home. Some people might say that you didn't give it enough chance, that you didn't stay long enough there. People have said that to me, but... The way it was with me, I'm, I feel that I am mature enough and adult enough to make my own decision. And in my mind, it is the right thing to do. And to me, that's the most important thing. If I was happy with the decision, then it was me that I was going to have to live with whatever consequences came. Tell me a bit about the procedures you had to go through to come back. Well, I would have had to see my immediate superior, which would have been my adjutant of the unit. And you went to see him. And I went to see him and more or less it was him that carried it from there. Mm -hmm. That would be my initial step in the chain of command. How long would he have talked to you about it? How many times would you have seen him? Oh, I would have seen him maybe two or three times a day for a few days. And um, he spoke to me about it and made sure he as well was very concerned with the fact that I was making the right decision for myself. So you just saw him over a period of three days? Yes. And then he set everything in motion? Yes. And how long did that take? Um, it took only a few days. It was very rapid and mm -hmm. done very quickly and most efficient. And I, in the meantime, I had a lot of very good friends over there and we talked about it all the time and we they gave me their advice and we... We discussed the whole thing at length, really, mm -hmm. before. Were you persuaded to stay at all? 
um, nobody actually asked me to stay, but they were the whole point always was that I would be sure I was doing the right thing because mm. at the end of the day, it's it's my life and it's me that has to live it. They could carry on with their jobs or whatever, but I'm the one who has to live w- with whatever decision I had made, whether I had stayed or whether I had come home. Do you think maybe now that you might have been persuaded to stay? Do no, you think? no, I don't. No matter I what think they did. No, I think I did the right thing for everybody concerned and most importantly for myself. Mm. But I thought about it a lot and I looked at it from every option. And I thought the best place for me at that time in the circumstances was at home where everything was familiar to me. At home. But you'd been looking forward to it so much and talking to earlier on, you know, you, you were so keen to go. And we, even when you were there, you sounded fine. Oh, I was very keen to go. I mean, this is in the army. Lebanon is built up to be something fantastic and that if you don't go there, then, you know, what's wrong? Why haven't you been or when are you going sort of thing? So you catch on to that yourself and owns to yourself. You actually get that bug yourself. Mine came a bit later in life than maybe some of the other females. Mm -hmm. But you actually build yourself up to it. The time to leave for me was very sad. And particularly, believe it or not, within those two weeks, I have made I had made lifelong friends who will always be friends to me. And I felt very sad at leaving them. And of course, you feel a certain disappointment within yourself. But yet I knew that what I was doing was right. So it kind of lifted a little. But it was very sad on the day I left and I was whisked out very quickly so that nobody could really upset me more or less. Mm -hmm. Everybody was really good to me. But I missed the whole idea of the camaraderie in Lebanon and having all the friends around and suddenly I was on my own on a plane home. It must have been quite difficult for you when you went back to work. It was very difficult for me and probably I had built up a lot of the problems in my own mind. I was convinced that people would be pointing the finger at me and it never happened. Everybody was really good to me and they accepted that it was my decision. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they ask me why and often I can't answer it. But they did ask. People do ask and I accept that from certain people, particularly my friends. And um, a lot of people, I got vindictiveness from a lot of people, which is going to happen anyway. But I was well prepared. I'm a strong person and I hopefully feel I have just left behind now and I'm going to continue on with my career. Did you expect a vindictiveness? Yes. Did you? Yes. You expect people would, would, would say to you, why didn't you stick it out? Yes, I did expect that because everybody is different. And some people, in fairness, they couldn't understand why I, I came home, why I didn't stay there, why I didn't stay overseas. To some people, if you don't do that, if you don't stay overseas and whatever, then you're not really a full soldier. or You're not doing your job to its utmost. And I don't feel that way. I feel I can still carry out my duty. I can still carry on in my career as well, hopefully, as I ever did. You were home when the war started, right? Yes. So what went through your mind at that stage? I had got to the stage when I came home that if I didn't stop thinking and living in the past, that I I couldn't carry on in my job. So I had to put it behind me and I had to put any thoughts of Lebanon behind me 
and just continue on as they do at the end of six months as well they have the same problems they have got to say it's over now and continue into their normal work and I had to do that for myself because I couldn't live in the past and I couldn't live with thinking that everybody was going around pointing the finger and saying she came home from Lebanon kind of thing so I didn't I as as much as possible I didn't think about Lebanon from a distance we are instruments marching in a common band playing songs of hope playing songs of peace they're the songs of every man God is watching us God is watching us God is watching us from a distance Do you ever in your in your sort of inner self say to yourself I wish I'd stayed Of course I have to say that to myself particularly at this time because now they're coming home and you'll always say it should have been me but if I have to live my life with ifs and buts and would-bes, then there's nobody going anywhere. I have to go forward.